Mondays. We're the show that tackles some tough topics sometimes. And today's tough topic has to do with our children and what could be tougher than that. We all want to raise our children well, or at least most of us do. I suppose I have met a few people in this world that don't really think too much about it. Um, And there's an age-old debate about spanking. And there have been people who've said, well, a little smack on the bottom is helpful. Uh, There are those who say it's terrible and you shouldn't do it. But today's guest has done more than just form an opinion about it. She's done research about it, and she understands the bigger implications of it. I'm talking about Robin Peters-Bennett. Thank you for joining us, Robin. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Well, thank you. Um, Robin, I could give a big, lengthy explanation of your background and why you are our expert on this topic, but it might be best if you just give us a brief uh, explanation of how, what your field is and how you come to be interested in this particular area. Wonderful. Well, I am a psychotherapist, and I work uh, especially with traumatized children and also adults who have experienced uh, significant early adversity that affects their mood and affects their ability to form relationship and just to feel good and, and to enjoy their life. Um, I work a lot with children who have temper tantrums, and they're, we call it dysregulated, but it really looks like kids that can't manage their emotions and are oppositional and dig their heels in and yell and bite and all of this sort of thing. Um, and especially I work with children who have had a very serious uh, early beginnings where perhaps they were uh, in abusive environments or forms of neglect. So I'm interested really in our most compromised children. And spanking, uh, a lot of folks sort of think of as sort of a trivial issue. Uh, and if you're interested in ending child abuse, um, why are you off on this tributary of worrying about spanking and that sort of thing? But it has to do with really understanding the brain because when you treat children uh, who have had early uh, adversity, you find that there's actual brain alteration that affects their ability to behave in ways we might want them to behave. And so we have to really understand how to mend those neurodevelopmental injuries, those brain uh, injuries, so to speak, Uh, because what we begin to understand is that psychological injury or neglect or abuse of children uh, when they're little is not just a psychological injury. It's not just a problem with their self-esteem. It's actually more akin to a physiological injury. It's a neuro injury. It's a brain injury. And we've seen this on MRI scans. We know this to be the case. So what I was interested in is prevention and trying to understand, um, particularly working with parents who have a lot of, a lot of stress, um, you know, spanking is really quite common. And I started to be looking at this research and recognizing, oh, wow, the, the outcomes around spanking, uh, the correlations in research are very similar to overt child abuse. And that's when I started to dig in and try to learn more about what exactly is spanking doing uh, to the brain. Well, can we back up a little bit? Because I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a while. Um, when I was a child, of course, that was 150 years ago, um, spanking was very common. Now, I received some, some spankings, but I think it was like twice in my lifetime, and both times it was a swat on the bottom. And I must confess that when my son was little, I spanked him. 
um, he was still in diapers, and he was in the back seat of the car, in the car seat. But he was a smart little Dickens, and he figured out how to get out of his own car seat. And so I was driving yeah. down a, a stretch of road, and all of a sudden, boom, the kid's head is right next to my gear shift knob. And I'm going, oh, oh and, I over, and I said, get back in there. And he was less than three years old. And I, I said, you have to stay in here. You know, you have to blah, blah, blah. I gave him a little, little talking to, buckled him back up, went a mile down the road, and bang, there's his head again. This is a great game, right? And the fourth time he did it, I thought, how, what, what on earth can I, I cannot reason with this child. This child is little. He doesn't understand about car wrecks, you know. And so right. I said, if you do that again, I will spank you. And he said, what's that? And I said, that's where I hit your bottom and it hurts. <laughs> I, I didn't know what else to do. And yeah, so sure, you were scared. He, he did it again, and I pulled over, and he was wearing big pampers, you know, big disposable diapers. And I went whack, and it made more noise than I'm sure did any, uh, you know, I mean, I, I doubt he even felt it. You know, I mean, you know those right. diapers. More hurt it than back. felt it, probably. Yes, yes. And I plunked him back in there, and I said, now you stay in there, and he stayed. And I, yeah, I thought, oh, my gosh, why are all these people saying that spanking is bad? This works. This is keeping my child safe. And for about a week after that, if he did something that I thought was really egregious, I would say, do you want me to spank you? And he would say no, and he would stop it. And then after about a week, I said, and I'm, and I'm thinking, well, to heck with all those experts. This is a wonderful tool. You know, <laughs> this is a marvelous tool. Right. And it gave you some immediate when, compliance and probably some relief too, you know, like and, and you can get him to about, stop. And about the fourth time I said, do you want me to spank you? He looked at me and he put his hands on his hips and he said, yes. And I thought, okay, great. I could break this kid's legs and he's not going to comply at this point. Um, and so clearly this wonderful tool that I accidentally discovered through frustration did not turn out to be a usable tool in the long term. Uh, nevertheless, right. it did keep him in his car seat for quite some time, um, which is a safety issue. So was I an evil person? Was I just frustrated, lacking resources to come up with some better way of handling this? Um, is it really that terrible? Is my child scarred forever because I whacked him when he was three on top of his diaper? We've asked Those a lot of questions. questions. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that strikes me is this idea of being an evil parent and um, just how hard it is to be a parent, particularly in our culture. I think our culture is very hard on parents, quite judgmental. Um, so the idea that you're evil, I mean, I spank my children too. Um, and I'm not an evil person, although it was wrong to hit them. And I just, you know, it's all I knew. It's all I knew at the time. But, um, you know, in this case, you know, a lot of it, you know, well, for one is you can see that it becomes less effective over time. And we know that through the research that it will, um, because what it does is it, it loses its effectiveness. It's, an, it's called operant conditioning, and you just have to keep coming up with a greater stimuli or a more... Um, uh, frightening or hurtful uh, response uh, because we are highly adaptable and children will adapt to the aggression that you are expressing toward them. Um, and there's a huge cost that comes with that. So one is that it disrupts the bond. The child feels that you are the threat, not not being in a car, 
that is dangerous to be out of a seatbelt in or walking across the street with dangerous cars, that's not the danger, not the cars, you are. And what we know about brain development is that the harmony and the resonance between the two of you, the connection between the two of you, is the thing itself that builds the brain. It's the, it's the energy, it's the, it's the glue, it's the whatever you want to call it, um, the nourishment that allows the brain to thrive. So anytime you deprive your child of a connection with you or a sense of safety is another way to think about it. Um, the sense of safety cannot be compromised because when it is, then his system goes from being in a state of growth into what they call a state of defense. And the body, in a very huge way, operates very differently when you're in a state of defense. And it grows very differently. So, of course age one or two, the sound of you hitting him is just as damaging because the system, the nervous system responds to that as a threat. It responds to loud sounds, alarming sounds, physical insult, yelling, anything that where you're in a huge alarm state yourself where you're coming at him is going to have his system go into that state of defense. And when he does that, it shuts down the more sophisticated parts of the brain because now he's trying to survive. He's not trying to grow. And this may not be such a big deal when we're 25 or 35 if we get alarmed, but when you're little, the brain is growing so rapidly that that is informing the way the brain is actually growing. So it's not just an event like, oh, now he's scarred for life in some sort of like one little injury. It's more that his whole system starts operating a different way. And so even using the threat of spanking puts the child into a state of alarm. Mm -hmm. So what we're learning about defense, a state of defense, is that you don't want your children in that state. They're naturally going to head that way anyway. Uh, and anybody that's raised a baby will know that babies are dysregulated and crying and get sort of off kilter very easily. Yes. So then the question might be, what could you have done differently, you know, in that situation? And one thing to think about. I want to get to some of the solutions and some of the other ways to think as we continue our conversation. Right now, I just want to talk about, because spanking is, it's not as socially acceptable as it used to be. Um, I had a, a friend who was in the grocery store and her, um, uh, daughter was sitting in the grocery cart and um, grabbed her, her mother put her purse next to her and the daughter grabbed the purse and dumped it in the aisle thinking yeah, I mean this is a fun game to kids you know they're not doing it to be mean sure. they, they think yeah they're, they're scientists right they're experimenting absolutely and so my friend picked it up and said no don't do that anymore and then she put her purse further away from the child well the child still got the cart and or got the purse and dumped it and so the third time that the child dumped her purse, uh, her mother put the purse back on her shoulder and uh, slapped her hand, the back of her hand. They called the police mm -hmm. on her. Oh. And I went, wow, that's a bit extreme. What a punitive yeah. response, yeah? What a punitive response. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and so you have people who are still thinking that this is an effective way to rear and teach children because there are safety issues, not just convenience issues or even behavioral issues. There are safety issues. And let's face it, there's only so much reasoning you can do with a two-year-old. Um, well, there's not much reasoning at all, really, right? No. Two-year-olds are not and, cognitive in that way. No. And so, although some parents, I believe, think that they are. Um, but 
then you have people who are so adamant about any kind of punishment like that um, that, uh, to me, that's almost ridiculous, you know, but from what well, you're it's saying. It's unfeeling toward the parent, you know, it's, it's unsupportive. It's like we're in this culture where it's legal to pop children in the face. You can slap them in the face. And then we have a Me Too movement that says men shouldn't be hitting women in the face, you know? Of course, because you can say it's discipline. So it's all in the way that you phrase it. No, and it depends. Not hitting them in the face, really? In many states, you absolutely can. You absolutely can. Um, and you can do a lot more than that, actually. You can even leave marks on children uh, as long as they don't stay on them, okay? So within 24 hours. So there's enormous breadth of which you can assault and offend a child's body. Oh, that's shocking to me. So is spanking still rampant in, in our country? And what about other countries? Absolutely it is. It's, 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 it's uh, 95% of all parents report hitting their toddler at one point, spanking them at one point. Uh, and 70% say that uh, there are times when a child needs a good hard spanking. So it's really quite common and, and accepted and at least, you know, like so that's about at least three quarters of children are being Spanked, we know that toddlers are hit the most, right? Because we don't know how to be with toddlers. Uh, because of the cognitive piece, we're not really very savvy with children that age. And so, uh, you know, 50% of all toddlers are hit more than three times a week. It, it's, oh it's stunning when you think about it. There was a research project done by a colleague of mine, Dr. George Holden, where he was just looking at emotional abuse and they had a video, like a tape recorder in the home in the evenings. He found that parents were popping and smacking their children for smallest offenses like turning the page while reading a book every six hours. So in some families, hitting is every day. Are you talking, though, I mean, I I mean, gosh, I mean, we used to call them love taps, which seems ridiculous, but I mean, I've done that. Like Lucille Ball got some love taps from Ricky Ricardo, remember, on I Love Lucy? You started on Lucille Ball. I hated that show. I just absolutely hated it. And I could never understand why everybody thought it was so great and funny. Um, You know, as far as I was concerned, Lucy was daddy and she was the wayward child and she had to hide things. And I mean, I hated that show. Don't get me started on Lucy. Right. Um, Yes. But um, there... I, I I have done that even with other people where you just like tap them. You tap them like to reinforce what you're saying. It's not it's not a hit. It's not painful. It's not you know. But you just reach over even with a finger and tap. You know. And are you considering that striking? No, this was a smack. This was a smack. They were smacking the hand. No, and smacking the hand. And think about that. If I smack your hand when I don't want you to do something, how are you going to feel about me? We're not going to have much of a friendship, I don't think. You're going to well, feel offended. Like. That's for sure. <laughs> you what? I could kiss the goodbye, Robin. I can tell you that. <laughs> yes. Um, well, like what yeah. a horrible friend I would be to be doing that to you. It's like a complete violation of your humanity, right? But we're so conditioned to think, and we use euphemisms, and you know that's the first key that we're up to something that we're unconscious about. Because when you pop smack whatever, tap, I love the word tap you were using, it, it hides what we're doing from ourselves. And um, that's the confusion. Okay. All right. So this happens a lot, even in our country, where people are no longer, for the most part, I don't think, turning their kid over their knee and smack, 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 or using a paddle or anything like that. 
I mean, oh, that's that, actually not the case. That's not the case. Mm-hmm. In, in, in the South, uh, we know that one-third of all parents are using an implement, 30% of all parents. And we know that a third of all children are spanked until they're 13 years old. Uh, we know in the South, um, around 200,000 children are paddled with boards in schools every year. So it's much more common, but I think what happens is there's little pockets of progression where you and your friends don't hit because we're such social creatures that we sort of establish it as a taboo in our little clique or our little group, our little clan. And we start to think that the whole world is like that, but it's not. Huh. So corporal punishment is still acceptable in schools in certain areas. And I knew I knew that was. Oh, and all, and all but two states have banned it in private schools. So only New York and Iowa prohibit private schools from paddling children. Really? So there are different rules for yeah. private schools? Okay, right. so the nuns and the rulers could rule. They, they still, they're still, that's still a real thing, I guess, huh? <laughs> um, yeah. Wow, that, that's, that's interesting to me. And you're right, of course. I mean, we always see the rest of the world through the lenses of our own glasses because that's what we know. Um, yeah, and our but, friends don't hit, so we think it's, you know, it went out with the, in the 70s, right? And, of course, it has gotten better. I think we were hitting about 6 million children in schools when you and I were kids, and now it's down to less than 200,000. So there is change. And there's change in terms of the frequency of spanking as well. However, not for toddlers. That's pretty much stayed the same, which is the biggest issue because we minimize it thinking it's a little thing, but from a neurodevelopmental perspective, small little hits, any kind of fear to children under five, is particularly damaging, more so than any other age because of the rapid developing brain and the child's huge dependency on us to experience a sense of safety in their body, which all that means safety means they're calm. And that's why, of course, with spanking, we see a huge increase in increased aggression over time. And it doesn't happen, you don't always see it right away. So like your little one, he was compliant for a week and, you know, you had some results. But what we see is that children that are spanked from age three to five, when the boys are nine, they have lower uh, vocabulary scores, increased aggression, increased um, symptoms of ADHD, which has more to do with arousal and attentional problems. Um, It's not probably classic ADHD. It's probably what you're seeing is um, their self-regulation is not fully online. So they can't focus and they are more agitated. There's a big difference between correlation and causality. Um, How much research has been done into the other uh, aspects of the family systems of those children who have been spanked who are showing um, uh, difficulties at age nine? Um, Well, you you looked at two questions here. So I'll I'll start with the causation correlation issue. So this is correlative research, very similar to the correlative research we know about drinking alcohol during pregnancy, very similar to the correlative research we know about lung cancer and smoking. So smoking is not causation research. It would be unethical to do that kind of research. But there's enough of it. They call it meta-analysis, where you look at a body of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of studies, and you, and you research the body of evidence to determine how valid it is. And it'll come up with a score that'll say, well, this correlative research is 
you know, has a, uh, you know, an agreement rating of like 75% or something, which would be pretty high in social science. Well, with spanking, the agreement percentage is 93%. There's not one study that shows any positive effects in the long term for spanking. And there are hundreds and hundreds of studies to show a broad sweeping effect. And it doesn't just happen later in childhood, but some of these problems extend into adolescence and into adulthood, including increased chance of being in a domestic violence relationship, increased chance of adolescent suicide and adolescent drug and alcohol abuse. Also health problems, which is very much the same kind of research that you see with overt child abuse and neglect. Um, there was hmm. the one other piece you said. That was correlation, but you said, uh, what was the other piece you said? It was important. Causality. It's not holding correlation it. Correlation is not causality. Yeah, you know, like, here's the thing. We say, uh, don't drink when you're pregnant. Well, can I have one glass? Well, we don't know. But probably you shouldn't take that risk because the research is so strong, similar to that in spanking, that why play with fire? Well, the same is true for spanking. They call it a dose-rate relationship. You hit your boy once or twice when he was little. That's certainly not as bad as hitting him every day or spanking him once a month for his whole childhood. But it's still not good. And the research does not give us a definitive fine line of how much hitting we can actually do to our children without harming them. But it shows us that the rates are so high and the validity is so high that you should say, don't do it. And of course, from a human rights perspective, it's obvious, right? Like, how can you say, uh, um, you know, Eric Schneiderman should not slap a woman in the face, but I can slap my child in the face. Or uh, we shouldn't hit, but I can hit my child on, on the pamper, on the bottom, on the whatever. Um, yeah. There's an incongruence the here. The classic example of that is a, a, a parent that I knew who gave her child a spanking because he had gotten into a fight at school. And it's right. like, do you hear yourself? <laughs> no, we don't hear ourselves. And everyone's mirroring that idea, so we don't even think about how, like, uh, ironic it is because we're all so embedded in it. We've all been hit. We've all been spanked. It's very few people have uh, experienced their childhood without that sort of just in the water. We don't even know. We, I mean, we're all just sort of waking up to this. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I was thinking well, about when you're in the car, I just wanted to say something about you being in the car, is that, you know, my husband um, got in a really bad car accident when he was 16. It, nearly, it ripped off his lower jaw. He had a famous surgeon, thankfully, that was just happened to be in town at the time and reconstructed his entire face. And the funny thing about being in the car with my husband is that now he drives like a grandpa. Well, now he's old enough. He is a grandpa. But he did this even before he was a grandpa, you know, and it was a family joke, you know, but really it was his anxiety uh, and his fear in driving. But it's interesting because um, people are frightened in cars. We think think about road rage and we think we're angry, but from a nervous system perspective, the system is alarmed. And um, so some of us have more alarm, like my husband, Um, But we all have some degree of alarm in a car. And you were alarmed. So what we're really learning is when I'm alarmed as a parent, how do I soothe myself rather than trying to control the environment? You know, control the environment by honking at some jerk that's turning in front of us or screaming obscenities or smacking our kid or 
trying to control the external environment is fairly ineffective. So what we are really learning is that you need to be able to slow down and recognize driving is scaring me and so is my little one climbing out of the seat. It's got me out of my mind. And I would tell a parent, pull over, take a breath, just stop everything, get calm. And, well, I did the you know, then, five times. <laughs> yeah, you didn't have a good solution. And really, uh, that's a problem. Your, your child can get out of car seats, uh, but hitting him is not a solution. So you really have to have your forebrain on to solve it. But you can't put your forebrain on when you're flooded because you're scared. So that's where you have to slow down and figure out, okay, um, have we been in a car for a long time? Uh, what does my child need? Uh, does he need a moment just to connect with me? Um, is he hungry? Uh, what is the underlying, does he need to move? Lots of children need to move a lot to regulate. It's the mm-hmm. primary way children regulate their brains is to move their bodies. So being in a car seat is restraint. And from a nervous system perspective, it's one of the two key activations for the nervous system is to be restrained. The other is to be abandoned. So anytime mm-hmm. we restrain a child, you know you're in for it. So you've got to think about how long am I restraining him? Am I preparing him for it? Is he already tired and hungry? Am I stressed out? Because children can regulate. You know, there's lots of ways to help regulate children through connection and then through other sensory stimuli. Um, but that's an unbearable experience for him. That's what he's telling you. No, I think you're kind of reading it wrong. What he was telling oh, okay. me is I've discovered something that's fun. I've discovered that I can... Well, fun is regulating too, right? It's uh, not fun to be seated in and it's fun to get out of it. He wants to be out of it. He wants his body to move. He wants to get connected with you. He wants to have you. And maybe he even likes to see you excited and look at him because then you're connecting uh, with him for a minute there. Normally, you're looking away from him. You're looking on the road. Um, I, and I appreciate all that you're saying. And I think with my, my other child that you'd be spot on. But with this particular child, he was a figure-outer, and he took great joy in being able to figure out. Uh, so I think it's... Yes, he was getting pleasure in just solving the puzzle. He's like a Houdini. Yes, Yes. yeah, he was a Houdini. Um, And so (laughs) you have a real problem because he's enjoying the thing you're trying to get him to not do. Exactly, exactly. Um, And and one of the things that I found as as a mom, I mean, my kids are grown now, um, and although I I must say, if I can just digress for a second, I remember holding my first child in my arms and thinking, well, this is my life for the next 18 years. Ha! Ha! 18? (laughs) 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 Scary, huh? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, a little joke on you, pregnant ladies. Um, Oh, wow. uh, Yes. It's life-altering in such a huge way. Oh, it is. It has, and it's lifelong life-altering, you know. Um, but yeah. I think most uh, parents, most mothers, um, uh, and dads, you know, I don't want to be sexist here. I just know from my own experience it was mostly mothering. Um, you, you really want the best for your child. You really do. And you want oh, to figure course. out your child. You want to give them the best, and you want to come up with solutions but those solutions are not easy to come by. And quite frankly, I have met parents and children who were miserable little brats because their parents didn't believe in um, 
any kind of correction to the child. They believed in just talk. I mean, I, I remember one situation where the, chi- the child was not a young child. I mean, he was young enough to know bad words, and he wrote the bad words on the bathroom wall. Mommy is a you-know-what, and blah, 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 you know. And I went in to use their bathroom. I came out, and I went, well, that's an interesting de- decoration in the bathroom. And they said, oh, oh yes, awesome. you know, little, little, little Billy wrote that, and he will at some point realize, recognize that that was a bad thing to do, and then he'll take care of it. And I'm thinking, yeah, when did he do that? Well, a year or so ago. And I, really? And how many more years do you think it'll be before he just magically realizes that that was not a good thing to call his mother? You know, I mean... I, I mean, I well, and that, that if you right. call people names, they don't want to be your friend, and it hurts them. And so, like, how do you build an experience of empathy? So, of course, what you're talking about may might be called passive parenting. They call it sort of like there's a continuum, right? You're either authoritative and you're controlling your child, or you're passive and just letting them go. But there's this other way, which is collaborative, which is relational, which is about building connection and relationship. So if you do something, and you're a little one to me, you call me a bad name, first of all, I'm going to want to figure out why are you so dysregulated, that's the first thing, and get you into a state where your mind is online, because I can't talk to you when you're out of your mind. I mean, we all, if you've been married, you know how that goes. When you're out of your mind or your husband, there's no processing. There's just firing of back and forth, right? So you have to get, get to a place where the child's body, their system is calm. And when their system is calm, then you connect. You might mirror. So you were really angry at mommy. You were really angry. Um, and give them more appropriate language to describe the feelings they're having. And then if they're online, and more, wait for them to get more online, more connected to you. Then you say, I don't really like it when you call me that. It hurts my feelings. I wonder if there's another way you can express how you feel that doesn't hurt me because that hurts me. And we don't use that kind of language. That's our house rule. So that's structure, right? You're giving structure that we don't, we don't use uh, foul language we don't call, or, or we don't call people names. You might be okay with using foul language as long as you don't assault someone with it. It's all your house rules. What are those? You know? But that gets established. And children usually know what the house rules are but they can't always follow them because they can't stay regulated enough to manage their emotion. And that's where we have to stay online, right? You brought up an interesting thing to me, and that is empathy. I think that we have to teach empathy, um, that children necessarily just have it naturally. I think we have to teach it. And and all of my years being involved with children, I have never seen any courses or workshops or anything that talks to parents about teaching their children empathy. Neither have I met very many parents who are concerned with empathy. Mm. Is that just my point? Sure, sure, important. Well, you know what's interesting is that there are courses now teaching empathy in schools to respond to bullying because, of course, bullying is dysregulated anxiety in children, right? And threat, their children, it's children who are in a threat response. They're in a state of defense and they attack other children. And what they're doing is doing all sorts of things to create empathy and to generate a sense of connection between them. So, yeah, I think it can be taught. But I would say this. I don't think it's classes. Because we don't learn didactically. We're even learning that in universities, that that's less and less effective. We're realizing that what we really 
are built to do is we're monkeys, we mimic, we have mirroring neurons. So the biggest way you can teach empathy to a child is to demonstrate empathy to a child. That's why you mirror his feelings before you tell him what yours are. You give him an experience of being understood, that you were angry, that you felt overwhelmed, that whatever, you were mad at me, you went in the bathroom and you wrote this on the wall because you were so angry. And then when he feels mm-hmm. like I get him, then he can extend empathy to me when I say, and let's find other ways for you to do that because that really hurt me. And I don't like being called names. It makes me feel really bad. Yeah. Well, and I think what you're doing also with that kind of an approach is you're giving the child the vocabulary. Yeah, you're giving totally. the child the words and identifying what he's feeling instead of just these random you know, neurons firing in his body, uh, you're giving him words for what that is. And I think that helps him calm down. Yes, because if you can name it, you know, it's kind of like dog training. If you name it, you own it. Um, (laughs) I don't, I mean, seriously, have you ever trained a dog? I mean, if you, if a dog does a behavior, for example, I, my, 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 uh, I had a dog who just passed away recently and um, she would, put her head against, rub her head against my leg. She'd just rub her head against my leg. And every time she did that, I'd say, who's your mama? Who's your mama? And pretty soon, all I had to do was say, who's your mama? And the dog would rub her head against my leg. And it Mm -hmm. became her cute little party trick. Well, if it's her cute little party trick, then she's getting, you know, pats on the head or a dog biscuit for it. She's not going to do it for free, you know? (laughs) You know? Well, there has to be a reward, right? There has to be a reward that feels good. And the biggest biggest reward we actually have. I think with the the raising children, it's the same thing. You give them a word for it, and then you can own it. You know, if you have the word for what you're feeling, you can own that feeling. It's not just something that's And it feels good. Yes, it's yeah. satisfying, it's regulating, and, and it also is connecting. Because when I give you a word and you use the word, you're not using it all by yourself. You're using it to connect to me, to help me feel you and to get you and to experience you. And that is the primary and most powerful reward system in the brain. It's not getting a cookie. It is getting your connection with your face, with your facial expression, with the way you're relating to me, the way you're getting me. And when we do, when we hit children or frighten them or yell at them, we are wasting our most valuable reward system, which is our connection to them. And it's so much more powerful. And when you think about people that go and eat the chocolate cake they shouldn't eat or they eat things they shouldn't, because in large part as a society, we reach for the alcohol, we reach for the chocolate cake, we reach for the sensory experience because we don't have the relationship that makes us feel good. The relationship's unpredictable. Our memories in childhood tell us sometimes I get hurt when I'm struggling or when I'm not doing well. So when we don't do well, we don't reach out for a hand, for love, for understanding because we've got this memory that tells us That's unpredictable. It could result in something negative. So one thing that's really consistent is a cigarette, is a chocolate piece of chocolate cake, is a drink. And it's never good enough. But um, it's the substitute, really, isn't it? Mm -hmm. 
Well, again, though, I'm going to go back to, I'm looking at my, you know, the only experiences, vast experiences that I have with parenthood are, uh, you know, and a a parent-child relationship are the ones where I was the child and the ones where I was the parent. That's it. You know, very, very, I I don't have in-depth looks at other um, life experiences in that way. Um, So those are the only things that I can draw from. And my mother was a pretty... um, my mo- my mother was mentally ill, and so she was a pretty tough cookie. And um, I can see how, for example, I can see how that has carried with me throughout my life. And I'll give you an example. My mother slept all the time. Um, she would lay on the couch and sleep. So she would never get out of bed. I don't ever remember my mother getting out of bed when we went left for school, left the house for school or anything like that. Um, and my yeah. dad was already gone for work, so thank God I had an older sister. But um, yeah. he would sometimes yell, bye, you know, from the bed bedroom. Um, but mm-hmm. because she slept all the time, we'd have to wake her up for dinner. We'd have to wake her up to go to bed. We'd have to, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. And, yeah. and we kind of liked it when she was sleeping because then she wasn't making our lives miserable. But right. what I found as an adult is that I, I can, I'm just now at the point where I can understand why I don't want to tolerate this. I hate it when people take naps around me. I hate it. Somebody yeah, will, my husband, yeah. I'm going to take a nap and I'd say, okay. And then I'd find a reason to clean out the pots and pan cupboard. I would, you right. know, I hate it. Yes. Cause it's unbearable to you. It's, that memory of neglect was so profoundly awful. Yeah, you it know, was a withdrawal. It lives with you know. Yeah, it traumatized so, you to have her be gone so much. And, and it also affected my sleeping. I rarely, you know, I'll sleep four or five hours a night and I'm up, even though I'm exhausted or tired or whatever. I see weight right. as sleep as a as a bad thing. And right. you know, hopefully, you know, I mean, it would seem reasonable that as an adult, once you understand all that, you could get past it. But you don't really. You just understand it. No, you know? <laughs> no, because it's really lower brain. You know, this is really about your self-regulation. I have very similar kinds of experiences, and what happens is that your physiological arousal is higher, and your system is in a state of defense more often. If you look at Stephen Porges' work, he talks a lot about this. So what's happened is because you didn't have your mother enough, your system had to be in a state of defense. It couldn't relax. And that there's a strong association to relaxation and naps. That's, he calls it immobilization. With you, it's immobilization with fear. It isn't with safety because the mother wasn't there. So for those of us that have this kind of neglect, we often don't sleep well. It's a physiological alteration in our system. And it is not easy to change it. Um, And to some degree, it does sustain itself as a chronic thing. And so, like, for me, it's why I'm really careful to not work too much. And I really pay attention to my body and how my body feels. Because it often feels different than how my mind is or what I'm up to in other ways. You know, I might feel just great emotionally, but my body is a little anxious or a little exhausted. And when we're little, we can't pay attention to those cues because of that neglect. Yeah. Well, and you're, you're right. I mean, I, I have had physical illnesses that have been pretty devastating, and I just kept going because I didn't pay any attention to what was happening in my body. Um, right, it, it just because your system didn't. isn't worried about illnesses. It's worried about immediate threat. Um, and and okay. that's what, and so that's the the heart of all of this work around stopping spanking, 
is to create a climate of respect and safety for children culturally. And if we're, and you know, and not to have police coming and knocking on your door, but having a school worker say, can you come to a class? Can we support you? Having programs and resources available for young parents who don't know how to be with little children, maybe because, like you say, your system is kind of on the go all the time. Well, parents like you and me who are on the go all the time really are hard on our little children because we're not, they're in their bodies. And if we're not deep in our body, we're overriding lots of cues inside of ourselves and it makes us miss their cues and it makes them more anxious and it affects their behavior, it affects all of their development. Uh, Because children really are regulating with us in large part non-verbally through our physical sense of well-being and connection with them. When um, my son was a teenager, and, um, you know, just at that age, when are, are they 12, 13, when, they, when they're bigger than you are and they know it? Um, yes. I, 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 think, I think I put in practice what you're talking about. Because obviously at that stage, you know, I mean, you, you, physically you cannot make them do anything. When they're little and you say... Right. I you have to come up with better solutions, right? Yes, exactly. You're forced to. Uh, when they're little and you say, come over here and they don't do it, you can go over and pick them up. But when they're 13, you can't, you know. Um, right, and I right. remember being very busy making dinner, and it was always my son's job to take out the garbage um, each day. While I was preparing dinner, he would take out the garbage so that it would be a fresh garbage can, you know, for the dinner stuff uh, or, you know, for the dinner cleanup. And uh, I, I was running around the kitchen, and I said, oh, can you take out the garbage now, please? And I kept running around, and all of a sudden I realized he was still standing there. And I looked at him, and I said, can you take out the garbage? And my son, this is going to sound snotty, but he was never snotty. He always said things with a sense of, I just figured this out. You know, not a neener, neener mm-hmm. kind of a The discoverer in him. The same kid that unbuckles the seatbelt at two. Um, yes. And he, he said, no, and you can't make me. And immediately I looked at that kid and I thought, ooh, this is pivotal. He's at the cusp of having all sorts of freedoms and being exposed to all sorts of things that he's not yet ready to make wise decisions about. And he is recognizing that I have limited control, that I have no control. Right. This is not good. I still need to have some control, right? And this is all going through my brain. And I'm thinking, what is he really saying? What is he really saying? I think what he's saying is that he wants acknowledgement that he has reached a stage where he has control over a lot of his life. And so I looked at him and I said, you're right. I can't make you. But if you choose not to do this, then you're going to be changing our relationship. And I don't know if you're ready to change it, but I'm pretty sure that I'm not ready to change it. And he just stood there for a moment and picked up the and went out with the garbage, and we never had a discussion again. You know, that's an interesting story, because I think in some ways, particularly around taking care of the home, for those of us particularly that have either had abuse or neglect, we often did a lot of things alone, and we don't realize the, um, the deep meaning that children have around wanting to do things with us, the sense of you and me are in this together, and sort of an honesty about our dependency, because really, you're doing the dishes or you're cooking and you need him to help you and it feels good when he does. And so it's a relational request 
And he needs to belong, too. And he needs to feel valued. And he needs to feel that you appreciate him. And so it's like, in a way, I think the new kind of parenting is acknowledging that we're not alone and that we have to stop operating like we are, where we're doing it all, and then we're giving out commands to other people to do pieces of it, which is deeply unsatisfying. But I think we're really afraid to trust our children want to help us and want to be with us, you know, because in a big way, it's like, I'm grateful for you for taking out the garbage and I love making dinner with you and I'm glad you're here with me because by the way, when you're 30, I want you to come see me and want to be with me, not out of obligation, not bitching to your, your girlfriend that, oh God, I got to go see mom because she'll be hurt if I, but more like, I love my mama. I want to go see her. We like to cook together. I'll go empty her garbage because I feel loved. That deep sense of you and me, we're in it together, you know? Um, yeah. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And, and many of us, like myself, didn't get enough of it as kids, but we can get it now. We can get it with our children. We can experience mm. it with our grandchildren. It's, it's a really wonderful we, thing. We always have two chances at the parent-child relationship, one where we don't have a lot of control and one where we do. And so we always have two cracks at it. Um, and I And I think that it's important that we remember that. But I also think, and, and I, this is really going off topic here, but I also think that we as parents tend to raise our children the way we wish we had been raised yes. without, without really considering whether or not that's the way the kid would like to be raised, you know? Right. <laughs> yes. We I always we think of it as we're, I'm raising them and me at the same time. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Well, you know, one of the things that we talked about initially were some of these long-term uh, brain changes and, and that the yelling and the physical um, um, negative contact can do. Um, are there other ways that you can produce those kinds of negative effects that are perhaps more socially acceptable? I'm thinking of some families I know where the children um, from elementary to high school age are super, super regulated and scheduled and um, academically supervised, mm. and even to the point where mom has, yeah. has a set of notebooks for each kid, for each class. And yes. mom is... I've treated families like this. Yes. Yes. And, uh, and even... Well, it's anxiety-driven, isn't it, right? You know, it's, it's, like, a, oh it's like super well, structure. And what kind of a message does that send? You're not capable. You have to have me do this. You know, I mean, I, I said to my mm-hmm. one friend, didn't you already ninth grade? Why are you doing it again? You know, uh, that was not received yeah. well. <laughs> well, but because, of course, the parents that are harsh or controlling are the most sensitive because they're most afraid of being shamed because they themselves have been raised in a culture of shame and they don't feel like they're good enough and that's why they're so afraid. You know, fear-based parenting comes from a sense of I'm not okay. So it's why we have to really develop ways to speak to parents who are punitive in a way that is sympathetic to why they are that way and try to help them understand that they are enough and that there are ways to be with their children where they don't have to be so frightened. So it's a very tricky yeah. thing to intervene with parents who are very controlling because usually they're also very afraid. And I've seen those children and usually they're afraid about going to college and like they have these big paranoid fears and they don't even get to enjoy their their life, but their parents are often workaholics and there's not enough relational time, not enough laid back, let's just hang out, kick up our feet. And 
just be in timelessness. That, that there's parents that don't even know what that is. Isn't there? I I see it as a developmental handicap because I mean babies have to learn how to self-soothe. Children have to learn how to self-regulate. They have to learn how to manage their time and their schedules. They have to learn that. And if somebody all the way into college is doing that for them, and then they're turned loose in the world, yeah. I mean, who's going to for them? Are they yeah. supposed to just pick it up? And they don't trust themselves. Right. And, you know, one way to think about it just from a brain perspective is that when you do something for a child, you're also conveying your anxiety non-verbally. They can see it in your eyes. They can see it in your, your gestures. They don't feel like you really get them. They often know and feel that you're pushing an agenda on them. And so that in and of itself, your anxiety dysregulates children and so it's really like if the parent can get calm and begin to realize it's okay it's okay uh, then they can be more curious about the child's goals okay you want to finish this um, and just acknowledge what the child's doing well and then be available if the child asks for help but not to have your own anxiety around the child failing driving preventing that failing because of course you know Failure is, like, super important for experimenting and creating. But some parents grew up in homes where mother, failure was not my, okay. My daughter went to a very fancy, high-end uh, private school. I would have lasted 10 minutes there, but this is what she wanted. And so she went <laughs> to this very high-end school. And right. um, I, I, I remember one night, she was it was, like, 10 o'clock. She was in, like, ninth grade, and I said, lights out, time for bed. And she said, no, I have to study, I have to study. I said, you already studied. If you haven't studied it enough now, it's not going to do you any good between now and midnight, so forget it, you know. Right, um, right. And she said, no, 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 I have to get an A. And I just went, no, as a matter of fact, I forbid you from getting an A. <laughs> you are forbidden from getting an A on that test because there are things that you can learn from an F that you can't learn from an A, and you've never had an F. So I forbid you from getting an A on that test. <laughs> What she? What did she? What did? What did she do with you? <laughs> I know. I know. It's, that's almost like like oh god! Now I got my mom and a test I got to deal with here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, but, I mean, I think she kind of realized that I was joking, but it, but it's I, yeah, I wasn't. She gets your permission you're giving, which is, I love you. I love your. I want you to have a sense of well being. I don't want you to feel driven and afraid. And be yeah. so, like, wound up, right? Just enjoy learning. Yeah. I mean, really, the most genius people enjoy learning because they're so deeply stimulated by their curiosity. But that's a forebrain mm-hmm. thing. And your forebrain's not online when you're anxious and worried. Yeah. You don't think very well, well when you're anxious. Yeah. Well, we've talked a lot and I, 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 about the issue of, you know, p- good parenting, basically. Good parenting. Um, yeah. but we need to talk about it and I'm looking at the clock going, Hey, what was I doing? What was I thinking to not bring this up earlier? But there are so many parents who are in such traumatic situations themselves. I'm thinking of divorce, yes. child custody battle, um, illness, yeah. uh, but it's all well and good for us to sit here and say, well, this is how you need to do it. Um, but what about those cases where it is just too overwhelming for the parent? Then what? Well, what I would say is interesting because I've had people um, approach me about, you know, well, is this good for traumatized families? And actually my 
appreciation and support of positive parenting came in working with the most traumatized families. Because see, if your system's on arousal all the time in a state of defense, what you need is to feel safer, and safety happens in the relationship. So the, I work with parents to build their relationship with their child, and sometimes that's like the most beautiful part of their life is that they start to realize they can get calm and simmer themselves down and get into a place of, of, of relative safety in their own bodies and that that helps them connect to their children and then they can problem solve with their children more easily. So like the last thing you want to do if you're traumatized is cut off your connection to your children because that nourishes you because we need to enjoy our children just as much as they need to enjoy us. So, you know, in domestic violence situations or where the mother's in danger, of course, she's frightened, Right. So the question would be how to put her into a state of greater safety where she begins to get aware of her own body and her own level of distress uh, because often people that are abused don't know how to reach out for support because they didn't get it when they were little, so they don't even know it's there. Community, well, we need to wrap our too, support for them. I mean, if, if we weren't raised with these ideas, we may not even know that they exist. No, there's no way you can know, right? It's got to have it. That's why we need helpers who treat parents not with judgment but with compassion to help them understand, okay, the reason you don't take naps is it would have killed you as a kid. But maybe we can help you begin to feel safe to take naps. And if you have a helper that listens to you and cares about you, then you start to experience maybe for the first time what it's like to have someone unconditionally regard you as a human being and help you figure out how to take care of yourself in more effective ways. Because all of those things that you do, not taking naps, working too hard, that saved your life when you were little. Those are adaptations. So this is just about learning how to recognize how you adapted to earlier experiences and then how you can shift that now that you're an adult and do more adaptive behaviors like connecting to your children, slowing down, um, asking for them to help you, thanking them when they do, enjoying their participation in your life. Um, Mm -hmm. And the list goes on, right? But, you know. We're all sort of healing, right? We're all adapting and trying to find better ways to connect to our children. Um, well, and, and you I know, that's that, where. Yeah. Um, I think that what would serve us well is there are parenting classes out there. And I know, you know, for example, in Washington State, where I live, um, if you go through a divorce, you're required to take a parenting class, but they're not very realistic, they're not very comprehensive. Um, and yeah. usually they deal more with practical matters than they do with things like, you know, th- this is going to happen. The other burden, I think, for parents, especially those going through trauma and difficult times themselves, is, you know, you have to prioritize. And, you know, if, if you're living in life and death and, you know, Johnny gets a smack on the bottom once in his life, on, on the scale of, of traumas, the smack on the bottom is probably not that, that big of a deal. Um, of course, it's adding to everything else, but still, you know, I mean, you have to, nobody can be perfect and nobody can do everything. And the, the scenario that you're describing where we all have these magical helpers would be wonderful, but is that very practical? Well, uh, it is in other countries. Um, and I think part of why I'm interested in ending spanking um, and really uh, promoting legislation that requires the state to provide resources to parents is because. Um, parents in crisis can't solve this problem, but the rest of us can. And when we have a value system that says it's okay to hit your kid, and in fact we kind of want you to because we don't really want 
uh, your child being a problem in our life, that is an attitude Mm -hmm. that drives antagonistic conditions for at-risk parents. So um, I do believe in having mercy for ourselves. We're all doing the best we can. And so it's not about shaming a parent who's struggling, who's already in crisis. It's about waking up the rest of us who are not, who have resources, who can vote, who can support social policy that protects children and mothers and fathers, Um, And that why are we teaching parenting classes when you're divorcing? Why aren't we asking for parenting classes when you get married, if you plan to have children, or when you get pregnant? Why aren't we offering these then? It's really like a little too little, a little too late kind of a thing. Um, Why are we waiting until a child's in Head Start and they're four years old before we start talking about how do you help the brain grow? Um, And why is it legal to hit children? Why is it legal to hit children? Mm-hmm. But so there's a lot of discussion to have, and we have to think about like how do we begin to shift culture and and make it taboo to be punitive towards children and parents, you know, so that now when children are struggling in public, we care about the parent, we don't shame them, and make them feel bad because their child's having a hard time. Robin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and your expertise and your experience when it comes to corporal punishment of any kind, even though I had to confess my failures as a mother to you. But thank you for being here, and I've learned a lot. And thank you. I hope you listeners have learned a lot as well. Join us again next week for Three Women, Three Ways. (music) 